Genesis chapter 3, and I will be starting in verse 14. Genesis 3, 14. A little bit of this is review from last week, but we're going to kind of laser focus in on some of this. And we're also going to skip around some of the Bible. So here we go. Genesis 3, I'll read our passage and I'll pray for us. Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that your word would speak to us, that it would not come back void. God, we know that your word is living and is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that a man can be blameless and pure by keeping according to your word. Lord, your word is powerful. We just ask that as we look at the storyline of the Bible, as we look to the effects of sin has had on this world, we pray that we would turn our eyes to Jesus, that we would fall in love with Jesus and what he has done for us. And we pray all this in his wonderful name. Amen. I began last week's message um, beginning with a question that I didn't feel like we fully answered, which is why we're spending two weeks in Genesis 3. And the question uh, was raised of, have you ever been in a point in your life where you just really struggled with the question, Why? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there cancer and hurricanes and tsunamis? And, and um, it doesn't take a genius, nor does it take anyone um, much time to look around the world and to see that something is clearly wrong at points. And that's an interesting thing because as Christians, we don't necessarily want to be pessimists. We don't want to always kind of um, live in misery and pain and sorrow uh, because we believe that the battle has been won, that that Christ has accomplished um, the punishment of sin and death. But at the same time, I think the more spirit-filled we are, I mentioned this last week, the more we are going to, at times, uh, feel the intense brokenness of the world. Another way of saying that is that if, if you are open to what God is working out in his world, you are clearly going to see that there's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of brokenness, a lot of sad and depressed hearts out there. And we see the kind of reason for all that in Genesis 3. And so we talked a little bit last week about really the nature of sin, that sin doubts the goodness of God, that sin leads to hiding and, and it leads to shame that, that sin leads to dysfunction. 
And that ultimately, sin needs to be covered, and we can't cover ourselves, but God has to provide a covering. And we saw that in verse 21, where God had to actually kill something in order for us to be covered from our sin and our shame. But what I'd like to do tonight is to kind of laser focus in on a little bit more of these curses. And what do they mean? Why? How does this affect us? And then maybe try to, if we have time, to kind of draw an arc in the whole Bible and to see what God is going to do about this. So um, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? Um, that is a question that I think most people at some point in their life will ask. And I, I think if you are really struggling with that question, um, the Bible is chock full of great things to read. But I would just encourage you, if you have not read the book of Job yet as a Christian, just to read it. I know that sometimes people get a little kind of bogged down between all the discourses between Job's friends and himself. But I, I still, I remember I was a sophomore in high school and I read the book of Job. And the beginning and the end of Job, I, I just, it's still to this day, it's an amazing story. I encourage you to read it. But ask a lot of that question. But um, when we struggle with that question, we, we come to this text and we see the curse that God gives to the serpent. Now, I brushed over it briefly last week, but there is still, I, I mentioned, a lot of conjecture of who this serpent is. Now, I'll just tell you a few views. I don't think it matters too much of who we think the serpent was. Um, as long as we kind of see how some kind of, some kind of satanic force was behind this opposition. But um, some people think that the serpent was a beautiful creature that God had made who can walk and talk and was innocent and was good. And he didn't really even know what he was quite saying, but Satan was kind of kind of uh, deceiving him a little bit to say those things to the woman about taking the apple. Did God really say this? And, and I think there's some arguments for that. And, and I think uh, the reason why people think that is because of the, the curse that is given to the serpent. Um, but, but, but still, though, even though if you see the serpent as some innocent creature who gets the, the punishment and all this stuff, it was still Satan kind of behind the push. And other people, most evangelicals like myself, would probably just see this as some form of Satan or one of his minions, the serpent. Because um, in Revelation, you can read where God says he will punish the serpent of the garden. And in that context, he's talking about Satan. Um, so whatever it is, we, we kind of can see that, that this serpent stands and represents God's judgment on Satan. Now let's let's take a little bit look at this. Look at verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So we'll stop there before we get to verse 15. Now here's the thing. When, when you think about cattle and sheep and, and dogs and even animals that we have domesticated, every part of creation, including um, farm life and domesticated animals have an effect at the fall. But here's the thing. They are not conscious of the fact that they live in a fallen world. I don't know if you guys have ever read Chronicles of Narnia, the very first um, 
uh, I think he wrote it later, actually, but The Magician's Nephew. And it talks about when Aslan was walking around singing creation into existence. And they're watching Aslan. They kind of somehow got into this world by some magical pool. And they're watching Aslan, and he was singing. And they said as, as the notes would get low, there'd be a valley and trees. And when the notes would get high, beautiful mountain ranges would come up. And it's probably the best uh, literature, just kind of poetically kind of talking about God's creation. But when the great witch comes into the scene, right, all of these beautiful animals that God had made who could talk and, and have this, God, Aslan says, because this horrible thing has happened, the livestock will no longer be able to talk. The livestock will actually, you will affect this. You will feel this. And which is why um, Aslan later puts man in there to rule over them because now they will actually need to have someone rule over them and give them laws and treat them fairly and with equity. But the thing is, is that animals are innocent. The animals did nothing wrong. But because of the serpents, God kind of gives this special curse to, and, and we, we understand this to be kind of um, metaphorically, that because you have done this, curse are you, on your belly you shall go. Now, because he says that, we have to assume that at one point the serpent could what? Walk. And so now, you look at a snake, and try to imagine a snake having feet and standing up and walking. Terrifying, right? It's terrifying. Um, I don't like snakes. I, you know, I'm supposed to be like some man who kills spiders and is picking up snakes, and I just always thought that was the weirdest thing. Um, but because you've done this, on your belly you shall go. Now, now here's just, let me be quickly, let's say quickly about this. What this really means, I, I think, is that God is saying, your dominion has been weakened. He's talking to Satan here. Because you have done this, you used to have more influence, you used to have more, but now you are going to be on your belly. Which is is kind of the idea of that, that you will still have some power. You will still have some influence. But you will have a lot less. And what's interesting, though, is the next verse, the verse that I talked about last week, of being maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, comes not to the curse for the woman, not to the curse for the man, but to the curse of the serpent. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want to just take a few minutes and talk about this one verse specifically. This verse, like I said, is called, um, as some people call it, the Proto-Evangelicon, which is just kind of like saying the first reference to the gospel, right? And, And what's interesting here is that this verse right here is actually starting the whole expectation for the rest of the Old Testament. Now, do me a favor, just kind of look through your Bible Kind of start kind of scrolling through with it a little bit. Keep going. Kind of like pick up some pages. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, if you get into minor prophets, okay, okay, here I am. I hit the New Testament, okay? This much of your Bible is the Old Testament. You got all the writings. You got all the prophets. You got the wisdom literature. You got the Pentateuch in there. You have a, you have a big Old Testament, right? This verse right here sets up the parameter and the expectation for the rest of the Old Testament. This idea that God 
is actually doing something with this people that we will be introduced to in chapter 12. When God takes Abram and makes him Abraham and makes him a promise that he will take his family and make them into uh, the multitude of the stars. The nation of Israel. This family we can draw a connection to with 315. Because here's the thing. We'll see this next week. When this verse was here, we, we, we read this. Okay, oh, okay. The woman's going to have an offspring. And, and her offspring, she, that, that offspring is going to be the one who, who's, who kind of puts the serpent in its place. And so you have this expectation. And what comes right on the page in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis? The story of what? Cain and Abel, which is what? The first murder, but it's also the seed, the offspring of the woman. We have this expectation, right? This offspring is going to come from the woman, and she's, this offspring is going to bruise. And so we, we read about the first offspring, Cain and Abel, and what happens? It goes horribly wrong. And so we clearly see that there's this longing and this expectation. Who's going to be this offspring? Who's going to be the woman's seed? Clearly, it's not Cain and Abel, because it's just bad written all over it. We'll get there next week, though. Right? And when we see Abram, we see in chapter 12, we'll get that pretty quick. Right? And I will make you, what is it? I will make you great. Okay? And then we have this guy named, a little later in the Old Testament, a guy named David. And God makes a covenant with him, and he says, I will make you great. And then fast forward all the way to the gospel of Luke. And then angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive of a child and he will be, yes, great. This expectation of who will be this offspring. This is the first reference of, of God beginning, the second thing we can learn, to see how he establishes a covenant of grace with his people. God is establishing a God. I mean, I mentioned this last week. He could have easily brushed them off, started again. But what we see about God, the, 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 I mean, right here in the third chapter of Genesis, verse 15, what we see about God is that He is a God of redemption. The whole expectation and storyline of the Bible is God redeeming what was lost in the garden, and he's bringing it back. He is redeeming what is lost and what is broken in you. So listen, we, we, we hear that Christian word a lot, redemption, but let me just try to explain it to you a little bit in a modern context. Okay, imagine that I started business one day. I went to Bible college, so that's just a bad idea for me starting a business. But imagine that I did. I go out to Capitol Mall, and um, I start a, a yo-yo shop, Okay. And the first month, I get in the Olympian, I Facebook, share everything, I, I, I use every contact, uh, contact I have, including you guys, and the first month, I'm like, oh, I did pretty good. And maybe people just supported me because I'm their friend, and yo-yos are shit, but, but the next month, I didn't do so good. The next month, I didn't do so good. The fourth month, I made no money at all. And I can't pay my rent to that, and then I don't have enough money to pay my own bills, and I'm completely broke, and I am bankrupt. I have zero, right? They're going to come, and they're going to, like, you know, sue me for all the money I owe them, right? For all, the, like, the, the merchandise and the, 
and the six-month or 12-month lease I signed at the mall, right? But then, imagine that I have a rich uncle who hears about this, and he says, hey, Aaron, don't worry. I'm going to come. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to buy you back so that you don't owe anything to them. And more than that, I'm going to give you just a whole bunch of money and equity to do a better business. Because clearly yo-yos aren't the thing anymore, right? It's a weird idea, but it's the idea that, that I was in bondage or in slavery to debt to someone else, but someone came and they bought me back. They cleared that debt. That is the God of the Bible. It's right here in Genesis 3.15 where he says... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That although God is the God of redemption, let me, let me be very clear about this. Redemption is never actually free. You see, do, do we say that a lot as Christians? Grace is free. It's a free gift that you don't deserve, right? But can I tell you something? That it always costs someone something to give grace. It always costs someone to give out grace. Listen, right now, if you put your faith in Christ, it's all you need to do. Your faith alone in Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins. You'll be given a new identity. You'll be adopted as a son and a daughter of God. You'll be a co-heir of Christ. You will have everything that you could possibly need in Christ right now for free. But let me tell you something. It might be free for you. But it actually took the bloody, murderous death of Jesus himself in order to accomplish that, to buy you back. You see, right here we see that although the serpent's um, head will be crushed, the seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised. There's a scene in the Passion of the Christ, and they're trying to paint this imagery in 315, where Jesus is praying in the garden. I don't think this really happened, because... It's not in the Bible. Jesus is praying in the garden. And uh, you see the sweats of blood coming. And, and, he, and he's passionately praying. And I, I kind of like that scene. It just really showed the intense uh, stress that Jesus went under right before the cross. And you see this little serpent who is kind of uh, metaphorically Satan. And Jesus is sitting there. And he has this resolve. And out of nowhere, he just goes as hard as he can. And he steps on the head of the serpent. And the picture is that, that, that Jesus, he will be the one who eventually one day will be the great one, who will redeem back by his own blood. Because look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes of them. Now we talked about this last week, but, but garments of what? What does that say in verse 21? Garments of what? Say it out loud. Skins. Skins of what, you think? Some kind of animal, which meant what? That blood had to be shed. Roman, excuse me, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sin. Right here, Genesis 3.15, we get the whole heartbeat and the storyline of the Bible. Let me tell you just one thing of why this matters to you. Clearly, Adam and Eve are on the line for their own personal decisions that they've made for sin. And we'll get there in a second, okay? 
We, at one, in one sense, we are always responsible for the own sin and actions that we have done for ourselves. But here's why I love Genesis 3.15. Because it gives us a reason for the cosmic suffering and misery of the world. That there is a force greater than the, even the sin of our hearts at work in this world. And even though he's been put on his belly, Satan is at work to, to destroy, to deceive, to lie, to do as much as he can to take the image bearers of God and turn them away from the praise of their creator. You see, although we at times are responsible for our own sin, and, and clearly the woman and the man suffer from that, we also see that the part of why there's hurricanes, why there's volcanoes, why, why I mean, volcanoes are kind of cool except when they erupt, right? Why there is divorce and depression and, and, and so many bad things in our world is because of Satan. But like I said, we all have to, at the same time, take responsibility for the actions because because. At the end of the day, even though Eve was deceived, she still took from this, right? And so God said in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, let me tell you something. Um, going to Bible college and seminary, uh, spending a lot of time working in, in Hebrew on this passage, I cannot even begin to tell you how much scholarly work is done on just this one verse of Genesis 3.16. Um, just because I want you guys to like think well and, and to be people who are, who are just trying to be of the text and, and what does it say, a lot of people take those verses, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you as a kind of key text for why men should be over women in all things. So if you, if you kind of look at some churches and you look at a lot of other structures, it seems that men are more times in leadership and authority than women are, right? And a lot of people, they, they try to go back to the sources. What does this mean when, when, when God tells the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you? Some people use it as a way to kind of say, hey, this is why men um, get to do whatever they want, that's a kind of a bad way of saying that. Why men are in leadership more and women aren't. But let me just tell you what really I think it means. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Is not a verse giving men the opportunity to say, hey, I'm the man of the house. You have to listen to me. More as it is a curse to the woman of saying, intimacy will be much harder now with your husband. Intimacy used to be something that came natural to Adam and Eve. But now, it's lost in the fall. Right? There's, there's a well-known um, book called um, Men Are From Venus and Women Are From Mars, something like that, right? Um, and just the concept alone that, that sometimes women, like, I mean, I'm married and I have four daughters. And the daughters, you know, they're just little kids. But I'm married, we'll just say that, right? Um, it's like... I, I, in my heart, I had nothing but good intentions. But somehow, lost in the shuffle, what you heard was something far different than what was communicated in my heart, right? And, and, and vice versa. Sometimes she does things and says things, and I'm like, what? 
just the very fact that, listen, as a youth pastor, I, I try to be aware of this, that if a guy comes with a problem, all right, let's be pragmatic about this. You got to stop this. You got to do this. You got to read this book. Boom. Problem solved. I know, and this is kind of a stereotype, and a lot of people say this, but I'll say it anyways, right? But, but when girls typically, sometimes, they come to you and they share your hardships. They don't want you to solve it. They just want you to listen. And I just want to rip my hair out. Why would you talk about a problem and not want to fix it? Like, let's, let's map this out right now, right? So there's a sense in which, listen, guys are different than girls. Intimacy is hard. Sometimes that, that, that communication within a, in a, one day, if you, you get married, you'll understand this a little bit more. And I don't think this verse is, is trying to say that this is why it's going to be such a man's world and this is why um, you're just going to constantly be ruled under your husband. More as it is, that it's going to be much harder now. And even though man is the leader, and we see that pre-fall, this relationship between man and wife will be much harder. Let me tell you something. Second to raising children... The hardest thing in my life is being married. Now, don't, don't, don't misinterpret my words in that. I'm not saying that I'm miserable and I go home and it's so hard being married to you, Amy. She doesn't listen to this, so it doesn't matter if I say that. Um, but what I would say about marriage is that it, it reveals so much about your selfishness. It reveals so much of how I'm inward and I want to do what I want and I don't love my wife well. And because of that, it is hard because marriage every single day is a glaring reflection of my sin. Um, marriage, by far, the most enjoyable thing about marriage is being married to Amy. The hardest part is dealing with me in the marriage. I'll say it that way. So um, a lot could be said there in verse 16, but, but just, just to be clear, God gives judgment, but he also gives grace because although childbearing will be much harder and I, I kind of want to say to like a lot of women who get just a lot of drugs and medicine during childbearing like do you kind of like work your way around this curse a little bit um I always wondered that with my wife because I'm like I wonder what God thinks about this anyways I'm all for medicine by the way if you don't have to feel pain go for it uh, but verse 17, okay, let's move on here, okay? And to the curse to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Let me go a little different direction with this. We all know that times work is hard. We all know that sitting under a hot sun, doing manual labor can be exhausting. We all even know that doing, like as Blake says, writing a paper about whatever that was, and no, I don't want to hear anything about that. Something, something about reconciliation. Reconciliation I kind of like, but the rest of that I don't. Um, it, it kind of it drains us, right? Work drains us. But let me just say something a little bit more about this curse. And, and it, it's been a, maybe a metaphor or a, a paradigm that's been really helpful to me lately because I just heard it recently. Um, I would say right now in this room, we all have dreams, desires, Longings and wants. 
And by that, I mean we all have some kind of picture of the good life. We all have some kind of idea of what we want our next week to go, of how we want the rest of our high school experience to go, of how we want our lives to go. And I'll give you one example. Okay, imagine, okay, uh, Christmas is coming eventually, and, and you just love Christmas so much. And you have it in your mind that Christmas is going to be, you know, we wake up Christmas morning, and we're going to open presents, and then we're going to sip on hot chocolate in front of the fire, and then we're just going to play in board games in our pajamas until Grandma and Grandpa come over, and then we, get, we have a nice dinner. Dinner, and they bring more presents, and, and the whole day we're just all laughing and playing with our new stuff, and, and everything about it is perfect, and we end the night with, with pumpkin pie and whipped cream. Well, yeah. I feel like I have to say that to those naysayers out there. Um, and, and, and the whole day is just perfect, and I don't want to go to bed because I don't want Christmas to end. It's a good thing to want that. It's a good desire. And every once in a while, the Lord blesses us where the reality of that longing meets the reality that we live in. But chances are, sometimes, that although we have this longing, this desire, we wake up Christmas morning and someone's kind of being the Grinch a little bit. We don't really get the things we want. People get in a fight, right? I don't feel so good. Uh, So-and-so are arguing uh, go do, uh, go clean your room and, and, and clean this off before people get here. I don't want to clean. It's Christmas. I don't care. You're going to clean, right? And when we have those moments, right? And what happens is there tends to be a gap in our longings and the reality that we're in. Think for a second. The reality you live in right now as a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, whatever, may be a little different than how you thought it would go. You may not have everything that, that you thought would make you happy. And, and right now you're kind of like, yeah, actually life is really hard and it's not neat. And my relationship with my parents or my siblings or my friends or my boyfriend or my girlfriend isn't the best. And I really want it to be like this. And let me just tell you something. Typically, when we get in trouble with sin, it's because we take these longings and we put them right here. And we say, I need this. I need my life to be like this. And we can either become controlling, we can kind of become skeptical and pessimistic. But let me just tell you something. The longs that we have are good, but we can't live for them. We need to keep them right here. Like, these are good. And sometimes, like I said, the Lord allows us to have our reality meet the longings of our heart. Like, every once in a while, like, I'll tell you a good example. One time I took all the leaders of the youth group out to dinner, and we were just enjoying good food, good conversation, friendship. It was the holiday season, I think. And I was just like, this is awesome. Just like life of how it's supposed to be lived. But the next day you wake up, and your kids are sick, and it's raining, and your house is a mess, and you don't like the way your hair looks, and you kind of get into a little argument with someone. And you're just like, ah. Let me just tell you, I think that's the curse of work. That there's always going to be a gap between this reality we live in and the reality of our longings. And that is sometimes really hard to deal with. But the story isn't over because if you switch all the way back to the end of the Bible, do me a favor, turn your Bibles to Revelation <clears throat> chapter 21. Revelation 21. 
we see that God is not done with the story in Genesis 3. And like I mentioned last week and even a little bit tonight, we have a whole arc. Genesis 3 starts here, and we're going all the way over here to the very end of Revelation. So we're going to get the beginning and the very end of the story. So this is the Apostle John writing about the vision that he saw. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a, what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he has said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have all this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the destitute, the, as the, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is in the second death. So we have this tree in the garden of Eden. It all goes to hell. We have a promise of a redemption. We have a promise of a sin. But, but what we know is that we will live in a world in which there will be tragedy after tragedy. There will be broken relationships between marriages and children and their parents. There will be really hard work. There will be times in which you will desire something really good. Like a group of students who love the Lord and are serving him and are falling in love with the gospel. And at times you will have these really good desires and the reality won't always meet it. But what's the promise of God? That although this tree kind of went off course a little bit, there will be another tree if you keep reading on it, in, in Revelation 21 and 22, God says that, that he will establish in this new heavens and this new earth, and the new Jerusalem, the tree of life, which will be healing for all the nations. Tree in the beginning, tree at the end. What is happening in 21 here? Do you know what we see? We see God taking heaven and coming down to earth, okay? Let me tell you something. Heaven is not about pearly gates. Heaven is not about floating on clouds. Heaven is not about having perfect rounds of golf and seeing all your best friends and, and having awesome dance parties. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is being with God. Heaven is being with Christ. And Christ is going to come down. He's going to make all things new, which is why as Christians, we believe in a Christ and a Messiah and a Lord and a Savior who is making everything new. He is redeeming all things people places back to himself. Now, here's the thing. In heaven, it's not that everything is going to be completely new and different. What's going to happen? He's going to re-Edenize everything that was already good because we read that in Genesis 1. God made it, and it was what? 
good. And so the whole storyline of the Bible is God taking what happened in the garden, starting a whole plot through the nation of Israel with this longing and this expectation that climaxes at Jesus being the great one who lives the perfect life, who is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor sit in the seat of sinners. He is the man who in every single way loves his neighbor, who dies a horrible death on a tree to one day be resurrected and giving his spirit to people who now also have this power of resurrection. You see, the whole storyline of the Bible is in three trees, right? Do you see that? Do you, do you ever notice on, um, if you're, Going down a river, when the trees on the other sides start growing, they inevitably begin to reach towards each other. Maybe on a wide river, you can't see this as much, but like maybe like a little stream. Imagine you're in the, in the middle of the Amazon forests, and there's just trees and birds and everything, and, and you kind of come down on a canoe down this little river, and, and you see the trees beginning to canopy naturally. Uh, both the tree in the garden and both the tree of life at the end are kind of reaching out towards this tree in the middle where Christ would die on the cross. And it is by that act, by the shedding of blood that is necessary for redemption, Christ is making all things new. Here's why I love Revelation 21. Because it's all about us being with God in a new heaven and a new earth, or guess what? You want to know the definition of paradise? When the longings you have in your heart that God has given you match the reality you live in every single day, forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the whole story of the Bible. Every single passage is pointing right back to that story in which Christ is leading us to this. This is why, as Christians, we long for his coming. We long for the second advent. We long for Christ to come down and to make all things right, to judge the wicked, so that we can live in this world in which God has designed for us to live. Last thing I would say, and then we can go in small groups is that this is not just for everyone. Did you, did you catch that where Jesus starts talking, behold, I'm making all things new, and Jesus kind of starts dropping his credentials, I am the Alpha and the Omega, at the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water. But did you notice what he said there? He kind of left some parties out there. Down at Revelation 21, verse 8, he says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't know about you, but I don't read over that list quickly. Do you want to know why? How many of us at times have been very cowardly in our faith? have not acted with courage. How many of us at times have been faithless or we did not trust Christ? How many times have we done things that we just regretted and that were just wrong and sinful, detestable? How many of us have murdered people in our hearts by just thinking poorly of them and insulting them? As Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who calls your brother a fool, you have committed murder in your heart. How many of us, we just every single day, we murder people in our hearts? The sexually immoral, 
Who here stands guiltless of, of being pure sexually? The sorcerers. Honestly, I don't know about that one. Truthfully. Maybe if you read a lot of Harry Potter and get some, some really weird fan club stuff. But um, idolaters. How many of us bow down to the gods of consumerism and, and sports and success and getting good grades and, and having the right look and, and being fit and liars? Who here can say that they've never lied? See, listen, we are in this list, naturally. And like I said earlier, we all have to pay the consequences of our sin. Even though there's grace and, there, and, there, and there's forgiveness, that doesn't mean that we sometimes get to be scotch-free. But, but here's the promise. You ready for this? Look down at verse 6. In the middle of it, he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Here's why I really like this passage. Because what it seems to be saying is that those who are Christians are truly those who just have thirst. Who just have thirst. It's all, it's all you need to do to, to have Christ. You just need to be thirsty for him. You're, you're not feeling, if you're a long, hard day, and you're just really thirsty, and you want to suck the, that, that that's, that's the feeling. If you want to be in Christ and, and to, to experience this, this new heaven, this new earth, to have eternal life and resurrection, to, to be in a new heaven and a new earth, Jesus says all, all you have to do is be thirsty. And let me tell you something right now. If, if you currently don't really have that thirst for Jesus, for that, that inward pulse of just, Jesus, I want, I want Jesus because, because everything in the Bible is about Jesus because Jesus is my Savior. Jesus, he died on the cross. Jesus is the one who's making all things new. Jesus is the one who one day will take my longings and make them my reality. Jesus is the one who is God. If, if, if your thirst isn't for Jesus, let me just say something. One, I don't think you know him. Or two, there is something horribly wrong with your relationship with him right now. Because this is what is promised to us, that those who just simply thirst, that you just pray to Jesus, Jesus, nothing good in me, but I want you. That's enough. That's enough. And that's the Jesus who every single week we want to worship, we want to talk about, we want to remind ourselves, because this is the Jesus who is, in fact, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, who is making all things new. In the garden, we see something horribly go wrong. But because of the cross, because Jesus died, we can see a new future and a new heaven and a new earth in which all will be made right again. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that these students would have hearts of faith, that they would just be thirsty for Jesus. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't be thirsty for religion or just doing the right thing, but Father, that they would, their hearts would just cling to the grace and the kindness that is in Christ because he has done it. The words, it is finished, is sung over us because, because Lord, you have offered this to us. You have offered us free living water. And Lord, I pray that you would set our hearts 
our hopes, Lord, our dreams, our desires for this new heaven and this new earth where there would be no more suffering, no more sickness, God, no more relational strife and, and awkwardness, Lord, that there would be no more moments that are hard and stressful. But God, you will dwell with us and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will walk hand in hand with you, God. That is a day we long for. That is a day we we set our hearts to you, Lord. May our, our, our current efforts be consistent with our future hope with you and glory. Thank you, Lord, that heaven is not about having a life of luxury. Heaven is about you and being with you. Draw our hearts more and more to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.